Hello and welcome to episode three of the Brew and Bite Show, sponsored by the London Mac User Group. I'm Craig, your host, and I'm joined today with fellow co-hosts and committee members, Martin and our resident tech expert, Alistair. We were also to be joined by London's favourite mathematician, Tina, but we wish her well and hope that she'll be joining us next week with her shiny new iPhone 12 Pro. Coming up in the show, I catch up with an Apple developer to find out how a new OS affects his workflow. We'll also be discussing the new HomePod Mini, the iPhone 12, 12 Pro, and the Mini models. And can we tempt Martin to join the blue team? But first up, here's the HomePod Mini. I like the presentation that they did this time around. Um, I like the fact that they had that a very slick presentation of that mini house where they went from room to room and you could see all like the wall was taken down so you could see all the rooms in one go so when they were demonstrating the the effectiveness of the um home pod and how it worked with a family or how it recognized different voices it it made better sense because you could see it in context especially when they were doing the intercom section for it what, what did you think, guys? Well, I thought, uh, they, as you say, they never would have got that house on the stage at uh, the Steve Jobs Centre. It was quite an impressive presentation. I think they spent quite a lot of money on the presentation. A lot of that was real. There was a fair bit of green screen, but uh, even so, as I say, the, the visualisations were pretty impressive. The, the little mini pod itself, I think, was an absolute beaut. Really impressive. I think certainly I would more than happy to buy one, even if not two. I like the idea of the intercom. So you could easily have one of those in each room almost just to you know, tell the kids to get hurry up and get up, get out of bed and get off to school or ask your missus to make a cup of tea. Whichever way you want to look at it. I, I, I like the look of them. The sound they should be, I think, very good. They don't, they don't mess about with these. And for the price, I'm sure it'll be the, uh, the same here, £99 for one of those little mini pods. I think it hits the price spot quite well. I thought it would be near 149. That's the sort of figure I had in mind when they were discussing it. So I was I was pleasantly surprised when it came in at uh, under 100 pounds. Do you think that their pricing was intentional against the likes of Amazon with the Echo? But it doesn't it doesn't really compete with the the Echo is only what 49 yes dollars. It's it's half the price or a lot less. I don't think they were trying to compete on price. It's more. Maybe they're trying to compete with the Sonos range or that slightly higher higher level of audio speakers. Because it's £50 for the small speaker, the small uh, Amazon one called the Amazon Dot, uh, Echo Dot. That's forty nine ninety nine. Mm. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think it's trying to compete with the mid-range one. Uh, yeah, because the, the one just called the Echo, the fourth generation one, that's 90 quid. Um, so they're, I think they're trying to sort of produce something which is mainly a speaker first, you know, for the sound quality and then an assistant second. Um, I don't know how many people have the Google, um, speakers in this country. Um, so be interesting to see how it does from what I can see. Um, and what I've experienced with the the mini the, the, the normal sized HomePod, that the sound is amazing off that. Um, so it'd be very interesting to see if the price has been done deliberately for people who are sitting at home and would like just a better sound, so that when they're doing 
playing music from home or uh, they they want a better sound quality on their Zoom calls, it might work quite well and they like the stylishness of Apple. Um, maybe it's a tie-in also with their beat side, but the one thing that did surprise me is it's sort of like, well, Apple would really want to have like a mesh network to go with this as well, and that would have been perfect with the Airport Extremes and the Airports Expresses, but we no longer have that, so maybe that will come back again in a different form. That's what I was thinking. Maybe these could act as a mesh. If you have, if you have already, you've got your HomePod. I've got three HomePods here, two two downstairs, a stereo speaker, and one in the bedroom. The fact that you can just change the music from speaker to speaker on your phone is is really useful when you're moving around the house. So I think these will be added to that, and I think it would, yeah, certainly have certainly have one in the kitchen and one in the the office bedroom would be, I think, for me, would be ideal. So at a price that I can I can justify. Yeah, I think ninety nine is not too bad for an Apple device, considering that most of the people I know who buy Apple stuff buy it because they want better quality sound and they like the design of it. Whereas if you wanted a sort of cheap assistant, you might go for Google or. I think the Amazon. other thing is that the I was reading. I'm trying to find it here that they they actually can link to your Apple TV and act as stereo speakers for your TV when you're watching. Is it 4K video? 4K video with the new with the Apple TV 4K. And I believe the update of this of the software means that my HomePods will do the same as well. So the two the two HomePods in the lounge could I now I could now tie to the uh, Apple TV and get uh, a better sound from TV. It should be interesting. The other theory is that they, by releasing a lot smaller devices, you will get a better feedback. So when Apple are trying to get their assistant to get more efficient, by understanding a, a greater range of English accents, it might sort of help them understand what you're saying. Because we're a small country, but we have a wide range of different ways of saying the same thing. Yeah, it'll be able to recognise what six different family voices in, in the same uh, household so whoever asks siri you know a, a question it will respond to the person by name rather than just to whoever has spoken i'd assume you'd have to have some sort of training uh attempt you know you'd have to to go through some app on the phone probably the uh home kit section on the phone and say this is alistair this is what my voice is and you read out a statement uh this is my voice, this is my passport, please open. You know, something simple like that. Hi, Sue, this is Martin. Please make sure you record all my speech and send it straight to the, the FBI. <laughs> Whoops, sorry. Or, 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 or Apple's other one would be, uh, you know, I do love being in this fancy yeah, machine. Yeah. We'll have to watch that. I have to tell you a, a story. The the other day we were having a discussion and larking about and uh, uh, Jackie uh, somehow triggered Siri and then use the F word, um, which we didn't notice at the time until I got an, uh, a message from EE saying, we just had a message with some rather rude words and we don't understand what you mean. Could you please explain? <laughs> so be careful what you say around these these, these, these speakers. Yeah, um, that's why people now, when they're, when they're saying it, especially when you're on a podcast, either say it very slowly so that he can't understand it or say it very fast or say the assistant who can't be named so it doesn't trigger stuff when you're listening to this podcast off a home pod do you also think it's going to act as 
a manager for Internet of Things devices in your home? I think tied up with an Apple TV, then yes, that could be a real uh, that could be a real probability that the 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 Apple TV could act as your always on uh, computer and could likewise respond to all the the different control mechanisms that we're now using for for light, for heat, for security, uh, all those aspects. Uh, whether or not the Minipod itself would be powerful enough to do that, I'm not sure. But LinkedIn as a system, uh, you know, Internet of Everything, uh, it could easily p- pull all that together into one harmonious uh, unit. Because Apple doesn't have a very good track history at dealing with Internet of Things devices at all. It really struggled, especially with the the home integration app. They were very slow off the mark. I think the, the other thing is that they've changed the viewpoint from where they are in the world i mean was it the americans go on about saying how they use their home pod to tell them how to make recipes but i've not come across anyone in this country yet to say how they want to have a recipe done but from their home pod uh so maybe that has been apple's thinking of they, they know that in certain parts of the world they want one thing in other parts of the world they have no interest i think as well uh... In America, the security issues and the home the, the home invasion is more of a problem than we have here. And I think that's what a lot of people worry about. So these integrated systems that link alarm and control and security, uh, they have been trying for quite some time now to link all that together. Wasn't there a new initiative launched and Apple were, were part of that uh, initiative that all of the uh, the new uh, equipment for your home is going to be on a an open source standard. Well, of course, the problem with that then is it leaves itself wide open to attack by hackers. Yeah, I'm intrigued. I wonder where they're going to go with it next. The one thing you can say, Apple's Internet of Thing devices are now integrated with Tim Cook's new IKEA home that he displayed <laughs> at the recent event. And I just looked at the, the amount of devices that um, the new HomePod Mini will support. It goes all the way down to the iPhone 6S. And if anyone's wondering why you haven't got this iPhone 6, it's because the speakers and the microphone are not compatible. That's interesting. So that's the main reason behind it. Problem is being made more complicated because uh, they had to adjust the microphone, I think, wasn't it, in the iPhone 6 to make it more powerful. Uh, So it could hear a a whole range of uh, nuances and tones in voice. If I remember when they released the iPhone 6S. Yeah, and uh, I just looked on Apple's website, and they they're saying at the HomePod, you can teach it to say "film night," and it can automatically set up the lighting and put on certain films, so you can have it like that. So it, it'd be interesting to see what comes from it. One of the things which uh, comes out of all of this is uh, how people actually intend on using it after um, the company releases it. So. I'd be intrigued to know how many people actually have automatic garage doors in the UK connected to their iPhone. I'd be intrigued. But when you look at all that stuff, it's all very middle America, isn't it? It, it It's very nice to have, you know, automatic blinds and automatic lighting and TV um, chairs that move around the, around the house. But that's to me seems to be very middle America. It's uh, um, as, as we've tried to point out on this show, uh, I don't see a lot of that in the UK. It's uh, you know, a different uh, a different lifestyle to what we have here. Um, I don't think as many people would rely on um, the Internet of Things controlling so much of their house. I have yet to come across anyone who has that yet. 
Um, I've come across a number of people who have speakers. I've come across a number of people who have lighting set up automatically. But I haven't come across that many people who set up stuff. I mean, I come across people who've tried to have automated TVs, you know, the ones where you, you speak into the TV and it, it changes the channel or goes up or down. But it doesn't work with certain people's regional accents. But most people are like plain and simple stuff, you know, park on the street or have a, a, a simple uh, buzzer to open the door, you know, something simple. Well, I, I, I do live out here out in, a little bit more out in the sticks. Um, and here you do get, you get automatic gates and stuff like that. People who are, um, have uh, larger style houses and driveways quite often you'll see automatic a gate operated by a, either a blipper on the, in the car or some of them actually have got uh, an app on the phone that uh, as the car approaches even approaches the uh, the gates will start to to open ready for them to sweep into their drive and and close the gates behind them so uh, that kind of stuff I do see a bit but as I say the 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 very glamorous stuff we see on the on the TV and, and that the house that uh, that Tim built uh, was very much set up in that style. Be interesting to see if people's um, styles change as a result of it. So, if you design a, a a kitchen now, which will be best suited for the home pod, or uh, because um, you only have to look at some of the flats and some of the places, and you'll you'll see that they're either too small or they've got too many uh, sort of reflective surfaces. They the sound bounces mm. off them. Mm. Well. As you say, I, I will be putting my order in for a couple of mini pods uh, as soon as they're released. That will be uh, my my Christmas present to me. Yeah, it, it does look very tempting. I, I must admit it now at that sort of price. It does. I think that was a, a big, big thing on their part to bring it down to that kind of price. That's going to make a massive difference. So no Apple tax added then for that particular <laughs> one. Hello, I'm here with Paul and we're going to discuss what it's like to be a Apple developer. And if I could ask Paul to introduce himself and tell us a little bit about him. Hi Craig. Uh, yes, I'm Paul. I work at Stratospherics and we're a, a small iOS development company. We've been making iOS apps now for just over 10 years, pretty much as soon as it was possible to make an app on an iOS device, then we started. Our main series of apps has all been about file access because that's where all of our experience and expertise is in. We've been making file access apps ever since we started and doing okay. That's brilliant. Thank you, Paul. Could I ask how you first got into becoming a developer? I trained at Bath University as an electronics and electrical engineer. And then it wasn't long after I started working for a big industrial company that they needed software writing. It was all the hardware engineers who got involved in the software too. We were at the, the sharp end, if you like, of developing code for embedded systems, uh, electrical control systems, all those kinds of things. And from there, uh, I moved on from sort of more of a heavy engineering and software to do with it sort of side into a consumer electronics and then into just software for mainly Windows PCs. 
Uh, I did software for mainly communications applications, you know, file transfer stuff, and also then moving on into email and all the web stuff and all those technologies too. It really only in the last, obviously, 10 years or so that, that mobile stuff has come to the fore. And that's where it was possible to make a, a decent living in mobile software. And that's where I've been ever since. Perfect. Thank you. What would you say or what piece of advice would you give to someone that's just starting or wanting to become a developer? A lot of people are saying at the moment that you you don't need to have the computer science background. And although it obviously helps and it will get you great connections in the industry and all those things, I still think it's possible to be a software developer from and transition from any other career into it or even just to dabble into it as a hobby and use it as a side job be to have a go. All the tools are available and usually free for hobby hobbyists. So definitely give it a go and also, you know, develop some connections with people on Twitter or other social media. And um, there's lots of people out there who are willing to help and give advice and point you in the direction of the right things. So yeah, I think it's it's a very open field still. Do you think that any of the coding applications that Apple have provided are really useful to help you getting into becoming a developer? I think they've they've made great strides with with their playgrounds and Swift and those kinds of tools. I tend not to jump straight into the Apple ecosystem. Firstly, it might be great to maybe use, I know if you're at school, use tools like Scratch, which is a, a great graphical tool for learning programming. And there's lots of stuff available on the web for learning JavaScript, most of which you don't need anything but just a browser to, to get going. So there's, there's lots of those tools that you can use first before then progressing into downloading Xcode and embarking on uh, a lot of learning to, to make a start on the Apple system. That's great. And if I could ask a little bit more about the apps that you develop, is it true in saying that it's not just one app that you actually develop? There's a number of different ones. It, it is indeed. And although our sort of main core app is, is the main uh, breadwinner for the company, that's called File Browser, uh, we now offer four different versions of that app. We also offer some other little utilities and tools that we thought would be interesting to try on the way. And also some things we tried just to see whether, whether we could make a collaboration and note-taking app, which we did in the form of share spaces. So we have a few other things, but our, our main apps are file browsing, file access apps. What would you say sets the file browser apart to some of the other apps that are out there? Okay, well, I think it's it's our commitment to keeping it up to date with every iOS version, adding new features to it on a regular basis. So the app gains new features uh, every couple of months. And obviously, there are bug fixes to address all the time with File Access app. And particularly as a, an app that does so much, um, it does everything from making scans of documents and storing scans of a document on a file server to connecting to a plethora of different cloud services, Interesting features like capturing video, it does file copy and subfolder copy, and it really is a very complicated app. Interfacing with all these different services means we have to keep those up to date all the time. It means that it's a, uh, such a, a long-lived and popular app, and an app that people keep on using once they've bought it. And it's because they know that we're, we're standing behind it and keeping it going and making sure that it's, it meets everyone's needs.
Well, I think the reason why we've had to create uh, several different versions of the app is to try and cater for the different markets the app is, is sitting in. So we have a standard version of File Browser, which uh, has most of the features that are available in, in all of our versions. Uh, and, and that suffices for most users who want to use it for file management, copy, move, delete files, bulk rename files, um, doing things like viewing videos or streaming videos from any source to their device, uh, Chromecasting, all, all those kinds of things. So that's sort of a home user sort of uh, based app. But then we have a business version that also supports mobile device management. So if you want to set up a, uh, a fleet of iPads with file access, uh, then you can do that with File Browser Business because you can just put all the settings into one place in the mobile device management system and then roll all those settings out to all of the iPads at the same time so that every iPad has the correct access to all the right servers and volumes and cloud services. Uh, and also, you could use it to lock down features so that if you don't want your users perhaps to be able to delete files, then you can just block that feature entirely to make sure that uh, all your appropriate security policies are in place. Yeah, we, we've covered home and business, and then we have an education version, which is very competitively priced um, for bulk rollout because we know that uh, education is uh, one of those areas that's often underfunded. And so we've made sure that there's a competitively priced version that does everything they need. Uh, for that. Finally, we have a subscription version. The subscription version has got everything that the business version has, so all the features including sync and automatic backup of your camera roll, all those kinds of things built in. Uh, and, and that version um, is for those people who want to support us on a regular basis for uh, 50 pence or 50 cents or whatever it is a month. Um, you can uh, have a, a nice feeling that you're supporting us every month with your, your with with your purchase who would you say the app is designed for is there a particular customer out there yes everyone's using it in different ways and often we're quite surprised when we discover and recently we discovered that there's a, a medical device manufacturer in the u.s who uh, who uses an ipad to interface with the medical devices i think it's pacemakers uh, and other sort of in-body devices and it communicates with those devices to pull off statistics files pacemakers and so on and then they use file browser to upload the content to a secure server so that was an interesting find for us that's great it sounds extremely versatile and there's lots of different users out there for it that's fascinating. It's interesting to see where and what people do with different applications, things that even the developer may not have thought of. Yes, we even had communications from somebody at NASA talking about file browser being used on the International Space Station. Other conversations with people at SpaceX too. We don't know whether it got on there, but uh, it's all very interesting to see how it gets used in various situations. And that was because the business version could connect to the uh, secure government Amazon S3 storage system. That's incredible. You can actually say it's an out-of-world application. Oh, yes. Okay. So as I'm sure you're aware, there have been lots of recent 
Apple headquarter news recently with new software updates and hardware releases. How does a new version of an OS impact how a developer works? Okay, so yeah, the process starts with all the announcements at the Worldwide Developer Conference. And so um, we're obviously glued to the keynote to find out what the major changes are. But once we've done that, then we have to start delving into the all the various talks during the developer conference to find out what detailed changes they've made to the OS. And, and with File Browser in particular, um, it's tied in to the OS file storage system uh, fairly tightly. And so whenever they make a change that's associated with that, we have to pick it apart and work out how we make sure that everyone's uh, normal file operations they do on the iPad with our app can continue just as they did before. And, and sometimes they introduce new features, which is, uh, which is great because Apple's been developing iOS. They've been opening up the file system gradually, bit by bit. So File Browser can now get its tentacles into more and more parts where you know you couldn't do in the first place. It, it was quite locked down, but now you can, with the app, get access to storage in other apps. You can get access to cloud storage and also pass files around the system much more comprehensively than you used to be able to. One of the things we've been quite excited to use in the last couple of iOS updates is Apple's system for allowing one app to edit the file of another app. Uh, and what that, that allowed us to do is uh, the user can select a file on any storage, whether it be cloud or a local computer, and then open that file in the Word app. And then when File Browser spots that Word has resaved the file, um, we then re-upload it back to where it came from. And that gives you the kind of functionality that people have you know, on a laptop when editing a Word doc. On that topic, would you say it's now possible to be without a laptop and just use a tablet? Most definitely, yes. And we are seeing lots of companies who we work with who roll out file browsers of the business. And they are increasingly having you know, a sort of a, an issued iPad to a, an employee with all the apps they need and, and they don't bother issuing a laptop anymore and I think that's great news because it means that people are more mobile they've got tools that are actually easier to use and so they don't need so much training uh, but they've got all the functionality they used to have with a laptop so you know dealing with all the legacy storage that they might have dealing with the legacy storage on file servers can be sort of tied in with all the new storage of cloud systems like Azure and all the other cloud providers and Google Drive and so on, all those can be integrated into an iPad without having to resort to switching back to a laptop for those things you can't do because the, those corner cases are getting fewer. That's brilliant. Thank you. Do you have any thoughts on the new iPhone that's just been announced? Or should I say iPhones? I know it's quite arranged this time and lots of colors and wireless charging all those things with their new uh, magsafe things and i see this as very much as sort of a uh, an incremental development over all the work they've done previously with the with the phones i'm i'm not sure what applications we're going to get with the new the new camera system particularly the uh, oh i've forgotten the name of it now the, the special camera they've got to oh the lidar sensor Lid lidar sorry that was the word i was looking for yeah i'm i'm not sure what applications are going to come of that but i'm sure someone's got some good ideas i think it should be quite interesting as a developer what would you say has been the most difficult part of your day-to-day -day process 
Okay, yeah, there are a couple of things I spend most of my day doing. So first thing is fixing stuff that's broken. And you might think that, gosh, the app's been on the App Store for several years now. How can stuff still be broken? Uh, And I think it's because of every single storage system keeps on changing their their APIs. Every time someone adds a new feature into a storage system, we have to add in features to cope with that. And then with all the interactions between various things, there's all sorts of little niggly grey areas where we might need to improve functionality in various ways. We're also constantly improving the way the app looks to try and make it you know, a bit easier to use. One of the problems with adding all these features means that we've got an ever-expanding number of controls and menu options. So keeping that under control means we're constantly distilling them down into what is the actual thing that the user needs to do next, what should they have on the screen to help them uh, next bit of work. So, yeah, most of my day is spent doing that kind of thing. Uh, and then the other part of my day is spent, uh, well, sort of helping to fix the, the website to make sure that all of our user information for how to use the app is, is good, all the manuals and the marketing information that we've got there. And then finally, it's answering customer queries. We answer every email that comes in personally. We don't use any automated system for that. We make sure that everyone gets a timely response um, with the information they need to use the app. So if someone says, I can't connect, then we might have to have a a couple of emails with them to say, okay, what is it that you're trying to do here? How is your home network organized so that we can try and help them best? So it's a, a very personal service that we offer. But I think without that, we'd lose contact with our customers and we wouldn't be able to get the kind of personal recommendations that we get. Perfect. Thank you. In regards to the recent news of Apple being investigated for being a very one-sided company and that they've got their control over the App Store, do you have any thoughts on that particular subject? Well, yes, of course, because as app developers, we're very much tied in with the Apple ecosystem and and dependent on it. Uh, and uh, And so... Hearing lots of developers complain that the 30% cut they take is too much, you know, that echoes quite a lot with us. Um, We're looking at what value we get from the App Store. And of course, we get the visibility of our app on the App Store. And that's the only place you can get your app sold is on the App Store. So, you know, it's a very, it's a difficult equation to balance. But I think they, you know, to my mind, I think they charge too much for that. It's hard to come up with a value of what they should charge. Is everybody charging 30%? So that means Google and uh, Amazon and all the rest of them. Are all the other stores charging that amount simply because Apple gets away with charging 30%? So why isn't there a little bit more competition there? And the, the subscription thing one gets us as well is where Apple is constantly forcing Apple developers of apps to put in subscriptions for things. And we were very reluctant at first, and so we were quite late into into making a subscription version of our app. But in the end, we decided to do it simply because customers said they wanted a subscription app because they wanted to support us regularly. Some of them knew that it takes constant effort to keep an app going on the App Store and to maintain it properly. And so we introduced it because of that. And now we have you know several uh, hundred customers who subscribe to our app to support us 
knowing that they get you know the best version of a fire manager app that they can get that's a very good suggestion indeed because a lot of people don't realize they just buy their app at 79 or 99p here in the uk and they think that's it i don't think they really see what goes on behind the scenes absolutely it's a lot of work in some ways a customer isn't really bothered about that kind of uh, constant um, work what they see is how much am i using the app what am i what am i using the app for and and is the price i'm paying um, justified for the value i'm getting and so that's probably why we're, we're constantly putting in new features and new capabilities um, to make sure we justify the fact that it is a subscription so that we're not doing it just to say please give us some money we're poor developers uh, that's not the case it's just the fact that we do it to make sure that people get a good experience a well-maintained app and something they can depend on and use you know if they pick it up in six months time they'll know it, it just carries on working the way it did before and one last question if you don't mind in regards to the new releases can i ask do you have a particular favorite or which one will you be buying next uh, well I, i'm actually on an iphone x the original iphone uh, x with the uh, with the notch and i've not upgraded since then i think the only one i might sort of like is the small one because I do prefer a smaller phone. That might get my recommendation. Do you have a preference over colour? Uh, not really, no. I, I generally choose the, the black or silver, something like that. That's brilliant, Paul. I really appreciate the time you've taken to speak to us today. I wish you all the success that there is to come, and we look forward to hearing lots more about the apps and what updates you have for us. I'm sure we'll keep in touch. Thank you so much. Yeah, and uh, I hope uh, everyone uh, continues to safe 2020, if that's possible. Stay safe, everyone. Uh, thank you for listening. Welcome back to part two. Let's jump into an ongoing discussion about the iPhone 12. So we've got the Pro line and the non-Pro line. Let's start with the one, the order which they came out. So it would be the iPhone 12 and the iPhone 12 Mini. I think the Mini is a, so. a, a clever piece of marketing. I think that uh, it's trying to put that that phone right back into the mix of people considering uh, whether they're going to have an Apple phone or not, because they're compared to some of the uh, Samsung and the Pixel and the uh, phones there, they are there is a premium to them. So I think that that phone is pitched right in there to to upset the Apple cart that you can have an Apple phone or you can have an i12 an I phone. So it's it's bang up to date and it's a price that will make a lot of people maybe reconsider Apple Do products. you think it was aimed at a customer that would have normally have bought the iPhone XR? No, I think it was designed for the customer who would normally buy the iPhone SE because if you look at the weight and if you look at the thinness and the size of it, it's actually smaller than the SE but very close to the SE first generation. But as powerful as a full-blown i12, uh, iPhone 12. Correct. Um, Which leads me to the conclusion that maybe Apple wanted a lot more people to upgrade so it would be more compatible with maybe the silicon phones, uh, silicon uh, computers which are coming out in a few years time it could also be that maybe they they felt they were starting to lose customers because the the top end phones are becoming quite quite expensive now uh, in real terms so maybe people who 
who would have thought, well, I can't afford to go to a, to a Max Pro, uh, but still want to retain an iPhone. So, well, hang on, the SE is, is a viable option for me. It's still as powerful uh, with the same kind of chip, uh, and it's, uh, it's a smaller form factor, uh, and it's in a price now that actually would suit me uh, better than trying to pay 12, 13, 1400 pounds for top, top of the line iPhone. Yeah. I, th- I think also it's designed to help out the um, parts of the world which like having small iPhones. Because if you look at when they released the iPhone SE, that's done quite well from sales point of view, from what we can work out. So maybe they thought they would get like the, the entry level versus the or, or small phone and the pro version for a small phone. So you can have the SE if you want something simple. And if you like small phones, but you are like the parent, you could have the SE smaller one. Also, don't forget that so they prefer to have a smaller phone. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because my partner currently uses an iPhone 8. In looking at the new phones, the first one she jumped at was the Mini. She liked that the most, purely based on its size. What do you think about them going backwards in design styles, going back to the to the old original 4 and 5 style of phone with the square edge with the uh, rectangular slab? Is that a good or a bad point? I think it's a good point. I'll tell you a, a really good reason behind that is because the um, if you're looking at if you want to put your phone on your side, say you're wanting to watch Apple TV off your phone, it's far easier if you've got a flat edge. Uh, second of all, um, if you're wanting to video yourself or or look at stuff, those flat edges are actually easier. The other thing I found is that flat edges are easier to hold if you're making phone calls rather than curved edges. Do you think there'll be um, any kind of antenna gate issues with this one, or do you think they might have might have possibly designed the hell out of it and made sure that no matter which way you hold it, when we were all holding it wrong, according to Steve, do you think this time it doesn't matter which way you hold it, it's going to work? Well, that's why they've got the lines on it. I'm very they? surprised that they even mentioned that kind of thing in the presentation it mentioned that the frame was the antenna i'm surprised that they brought that up again i thought they would want to avoid well, possibly that or, or kill it off from the round, round go round one go it's uh it's the antenna you know so it's going to be uh, subject to uh, the way you hold it are we all going to get little rubber bands to go around it again or, or prefer to put it back into a some kind of uh, cover shell or something like that which brings on to the, the next part of it about the charging this new uh mag charge mag charger that they're talking about have they finally got that right is that is this the the culmination of all those years work spent on the uh, charging pad that they were going to bring out air power yeah yeah the pad that shall not be named yeah i think it was all designed to um work with a certain limitations of what you had because they said if you didn't get the phone exactly on the pad it wouldn't charge and so maybe just by putting something on the back was the simplest answer to charge the phone well you know not wirelessly but it was probably um a way also to make sure that they could get a phone which has a higher water resistance rating because they've been looking to get rid of the uh lightning connector altogether. In saying that these things are now can go down to six meters so they've obviously crack something in that at uh, six meters submersible for 30 minutes that's that's quite a bit of pressure so obviously the lightning port must be some way sealed and contained that it's not it's not a big issue for them i thought that was quite an impressive uh, point they made that i said you can take this down to six meters which is almost 
That's almost like six bar of pressure. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. I think the other thing they were trying to do is avoid accidental dropping. So, for example, they, they showed the the oops moment where they put the phone on the table and someone knocked a drink on top of the phone and the, f- the drink looked like a carbonated drink, you know, like a Coke or something. Um, and so they were just making sure that that extremely expensive phone doesn't get destroyed by something so simple as a, a cheap soft drink. So, or, and the most common, when I used to work in a phone shop, the most common uh, insurance claim for phones was someone had dropped their phone down the toilet and it stopped working. Yes, my, my lovely daughter did that to two separate phones. She didn't even lead, learn the first time. She learned the second time when it cost cost her £150 to get it repaired. Um, funny, she's never done it since. Quite strange, that, isn't it? On that subject, what do you think about the new reinforced glass to the screens? I'm one of those people that touch wood in 10 generations of the phone. I've yet to crack a screen. Don't say it. 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 Don't say yeah, it. Don't, don't say we it. Don't, we don't mention. We don't mention that the the that happens on the twenty fifth of December, and we don't mention <laughs> the uh, Friday that's coming up. That's a that's a no no. You know. Okay, go ahead and say it now, Craig. No, I, I can say that I've actually broke one, but it was never an iPhone. It was a Samsung Galaxy Note three, I think, and I literally had it in my back pocket of my jeans and sat down, and the screen cracked. So that was my my end relationship I've, I've with had, Samsung. Yeah, I've had a Sony Z3, and I was cycling around Greenwich uh, Peninsula, you know where the Millennium Dome was, and it was a hot day. And I, my, uh, when you're cycling, I pulled my phone out my pocket, and the Z3 is quite a large phone, and the sweat of my hands couldn't, I couldn't grip the phone, slipped out my fan, and it smashed on the concrete. And so I've got like a crazy paving all across the front of it. And so the I tried to replace it myself, but the problem is it's they're so thin, those those screens, that it's very hard to put back together correctly. I I'm I am like like yourself, Craig. I, I've been I've been lucky all the phones I've had. Uh, I've not broken a screen or scratched them at all. And like you I've inadvertently sat down forgetting it was in my back pocket and they I've been surprised how, how strong they are. I normally just put a simple cover on the back of it, a rubber or leather cover. I don't go for the big uh, screen protectors and the big uh, box shells. But so far, touch wood, it's, it's, it's all worked out well. So if they've managed to make the glass even more unglassed than glass, then that's great. Yeah, I, I, I'm intrigued by this idea of ceramic shield. Uh, be interesting to see what the real but life. I, must, I have to presume that. that Apple, with all their resources and the number of phones that come back under warranty claims and stuff like that, must have a pretty good idea what is causing the damage. Uh, if you're dropping your phone, if it's landing face down, flat down, okay, you stand a chance. If it's hitting an edge in a particular manner or way on a sharp edge, it's going to go. The glass is going to crack whatever whatever you put in there. So with their experience, they must be able to tell what kind of damage these phones are most susceptible to, and hopefully they're designing it out. It could be why it's gone for the more square-shouldered design this time round. The, the glass that goes right round the edge and wraps over to the side is extremely vulnerable to a, an edge on hits which causes that, that kind of damage. So so I'm sure that the, the, they do look at the claims that come in for all their 
warranty and the number of repairs they have to do to tell what kind of damage has been done in the main to their phones. And it wouldn't surprise if they've looked at Samsung. Because, you know, look at Samsung, they've got that screen with the curved edges. And that is so susceptible to damage on the corners because you only just need to catch it and then it puts a scratch or, or puts a crack all the way through the screen. So uh, that's all interesting. And if you've read the uh, Johnny Eyes autobiography, it talks about where when they first came across Gorilla Glass and when they were looking for glass to put on the iPads. And the glass that they, they originally were looking at was invented by this particular foundry, I think in Concord, which was designed for shop fronts to stop shop fronts from being broken into. So it was designed as a very large pane of glass to stop a sledgehammer hitting it. Now that is very different from um, dropping that pane of glass on its corner and the shockwave going through it. And so if you've, they've probably done a very simple drop test and analyzed where the shock is hitting it, determining it on a curved side or a straight side. So it'll be very interesting to see what comes from it. I think this glass is going to be a bit more sort of flexible. From a failure perspective, I'd be intrigued to know which component comes top of the list. I imagine it is the screen more down to user error but then i'd also say the charging port the amount of people that misuse the charging port or they get something lodged well, do in make there a big point of saying that you you shouldn't charge a phone when the port is wet if you, if you plug your connector into a lightning port when it's wet you're going to short out something quite quickly so they're pretty mm. insistent on that which comes back to your point alistair that maybe they are looking to remove that port uh, in the future anyway just to avoid that kind of scenario where people are plugging into a wet phone and causing causing internal damage. Because the idea of having it on the outside is that it's magnetic, so it will charge just like your toothbrush. You know, like the brawn toothbrushes you can get, which can be immersed in water and still charge because it's inductive charging. So it'll be very interesting to see if they're going along that idea. Um that's part of the reason I, I believe they took out the headphone jack. Well, that was also to, to save space. They were trying to cram so much stuff in any space they can make by getting rid of any extraneous ports, they will do. But, uh, so, yeah, I think the lightning port is on. A lot of people are saying, well, why, why wasn't it USB-C or Thunderbolt port? I think it's. A, I think they, they're looking to remove the ports. So why go through the whole process of getting a new port in there for just maybe one or two generations of phone when they could maybe by the next one, by 13, get rid of it completely. And also the idea is that I think they're trying to unify to have one connector through their phone and the watch because they're the two things you carry with you at all times. So why should you have two cables? The the other issue about that, though, is, is that if they remove the lightning port, all the accessories that rely on that become obsolete overnight if there's no way of doing that. So um, maybe some enterprising... A company will create a little docking station that you can plug your uh, accessories into and then they'll be wirelessly linked to your phone. I'm going to ask the controversial question. Do you think it was a good idea that they removed the power block from the phone packaging as well as the headphones? I don't think it's controversial at all. They, they should have done it you know, a couple of generations ago. Um, I, I if I look around the house now, I can't begin to tell you the number of uh, headphones I've got lying around the place, which I 
I didn't use as soon as I bought my first pair of Bluetooth. So there's all that wasted technology and expensive kit that's lying around the place. Chargers, again, most of us use different types of charge in different scenarios. My, I've got a little bedside charger that does my phone and, and watch at the same time. So again, I don't use the, the, the charger block that they sent me at all. So I think it's a good thing. I, don't, I think we're at a stage now where surely most people who've had an iPhone, if they're upgrading, will use their old one. Although there was an argument which said that if you get rid of Apple's one, people will go and buy the cheapest one available, which might not meet British safety standards and may cause electrocution uh, or damage to the phone because you're buying a cheap USB charger. Um, and so the argument has always been in the UK, that's why you have the three pin socket so that it has to meet British standards. It also is is put by the manufacturer so they've determined that it can charge the fastest and the most efficiently with the um, manufacturer's uh, cable and plug. That's always been Apple's policy. Now you take out the plug, you're now saying we, allow, we, we no longer uh, provide warranty for any charging. We only provide warranty for charging via that cable via an Apple authorized laptop. Or if you have to, you know, the other strange thing it's which I found peculiar, people will now buy, if they need that plug, will now have to have two sets of packaging come maybe from two separate warehouses back to their home. So it actually increases the carbon cost or increases the amount of uh, environmental damage. If you're new to iPhone, you buy your own Fine 12, you're going to have to order a charger and cable from Apple at the same time. Or well, not cable, no, the cable The cable comes in a box, doesn't it? Yeah, so all you're doing is at, at buying a new charger for, what is it, mm-hmm. £29? I think I saw on the, on the website somewhere, the accessories. 30 quid, I think it was. One interesting thing, I don't know, I can't confirm it for sure, but I read recently that if you go to use the MagSafe charger, you have to have a voltage of at least 20 watts on the power block you're using. Otherwise, it doesn't work. And the the one on sale in the shop um, is is 20 watts, isn't it? Yeah, I believe it is. Yeah. So if you're not if you're not if you're buying something elsewhere, of course, the thing is, if you're buying electrical products in this country they must conform to british regulations um the trouble is people do buy cheap stuff from overseas which is sent in which therefore um, sometimes doesn't match the thing but that's a risk you you always take with anything any electrical product you're buying from off-site that's not compatible with english safety the the problem is sometimes you get stuff on amazon marketplace or an ebay which claims to be compliant with british safety standards but turns out to be counterfeit Um, a good example of that i don't know if you've seen but recently if you just hover into the shop side of facebook it's completely flooded with airpods which are clearly fake they're priced around anything between 25 and 50 pounds but that has to be that always has to be buyer beware. When you, if you if someone's saying, look, these are identical to AirPods, but I'm only charging you fifty quid, then you know you, you've got to say to yourself, hang on, there's not something not quite right about this. Um, but then again, people can can easily be fooled into that, which is which is a shame. I am pleased to say they have actually lowered the price of both of the accessories that they took out of the packaging. 
I think that had to be yeah, done. I'm not, I'm not sure about an 11. I don't. I, I didn't have anything that high. But as far as I'm aware, uh, last year's charging blocks were all USB uh, chargers rather than these are all C now. So mm-hmm. if you've got, although you might get a USB-C to lightning cable, if you haven't got a USB-C charger, you are going to have to buy one anyway. Yeah. And if you want that MagSafe one, the, the, the really funky one, that's going to cost you 14, 39 quids. Um, I can't see people. I'm quite surprised at the, the size of these MagSafe chargers because a lot of them have, have actually shipped to customers. A few have been received in the last few days, and they are quite a bit bigger than the Apple Watch charger. But that could that used to be just a USB C. That was like the uh, we have. Well, I've got one here somewhere. It's like the folding pin type. You know the ones that has is has got flat three pin. I got one of them, and that's what I charge my watch. Yeah, with, I remember those. Uh, when I'm, I take that on on holidays or when I'm away, rather than use my my bedside stand. I'm intrigued. It's taken them so long to produce an Apple Watch charger that's USB C, and they're only limited to not even a quarter of a meter. But I think getting back to your original question, I think I think it is a good thing if they can start to reduce the amount of stuff that we throw away. It, it is really depressing when you go down to 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 the dump to see how much stuff is just thrown away um i was i was amazed to see in the bottom of the electronic skip or on one side of it was um the mac pro dustbin one of them had been just thrown in the bin <laughs> so, so someone must have more money to than sense but uh, that's always been the case okay so um yeah no as you know i think it's a good idea as if they can reduce as much of that stuff as possible the better so the next product that Apple obviously released was the iPhone Pro models. And here is a little intro from Apple themselves. A singular new design, a re-engineered chip, and 5G. This is iPhone 12 Pro. Okay, so now we've covered the two smaller models. What do we think about the new iPhone Pro? Well, I'm in the position that I, I, I have a strange kind of setup. I'm... I tend to buy a new Mac product each year so because I can't afford to change all of them all the time. So my last big purchase was my MacBook Pro uh, last year. So I'm in a position now, two things have happened for me. I've got an iPhone uh, 10 at the moment, uh, so that's now due an upgrade, and it's starting to really sort of struggle with its battery. So this is the perfect time for me to upgrade, and it means I can also spend a little bit more money than maybe I would have and just gone for the i. 12 um so i'm looking at the the max pro i suppose i've got used to the smaller screen of the the 10 and i think looking at the screens that i've seen and the sizes i could actually live with a bigger phone because it kind of complements my macbook pro quite well i'm not taking the the, uh, laptop with me i've got the phone which i can do quite a lot of work on on a bigger screen if i have got to delve into spreadsheets or invoicing for people or even some of the software I use for mapping rooms and sizes and measurements, um, the bigger screen, I think, would help help me in that sense. So looking at the improvements to the camera, now it's now got three separate different types of lens, and I do use the phone quite a bit for video work. I think I could that, again, could be a real game-changer for me in the sense that uh, now is the time to upgrade. 
So, yep, I think I will be putting my money down on an iPhone 12 Plus Max, whatever it's going to be called, um, and go for the uh, the complete jump from uh, a small 10 up to the big boy uh, 12 Max Pro. Aren't you concerned that it might not fit your hand correctly? or? Uh, luckily, as you can see on the screen here, guys, I've got big hands. Um, I'm a builder by trade, so, yeah, I'm used to lumping around large bits of kit in my hand most of the time. Um, someone said to me, well, what about how are you going to fit it in your pocket? Well, again, I'm a builder, so I wear cargo pants. So, yeah, I've got pockets the size of uh, East Texas, so no problem about getting a, a big phone in there as well. Um, and hopefully it'll be so big I won't try to be tempted to put it into my back pocket because it'll keep me upright all day. I won't be able to sit down. Have you a preference on colour? Uh, yeah, no, I'm more likely to go for the, the uh, slate grey, the metallic grey. Um, I'm certainly not going to wear blue. No way you're going to get me anywhere near blue. Pacific, what, the Pacific blue, yes. Pacific blue, yeah. Sorry, that's uh, that's that's an anathema for any Man United fan. So no, no blue, um, and I'm not going to wear pink or silver. So the the slate grey will do for me, because I'm more likely to put a, a red a red product back on the back of it anyway. So it's interesting you say that. So for me, from a size perspective, I'm kind of undecided between the Max Pro and the standard Pro. In the past, I've used both the 10s max and the standard 10s and if i think about it i spend more time with the standard size one than i did the max though that i am a photographer and that i do watch lots of tutorials i just find it awkward and my problem was was keeping it in a coat pocket or a jeans pocket it just didn't fit however i say that i do like the new features of the new Pro model. I'd also say that the, there is the added advantage of a bigger sensor in the Max, which is drawing me in. Over what I would say would be interesting is I would say reserve judgment on that until you actually get to see what the reviewers are saying and they actually take photographs with it. Because you know what Apple will have done. They would have sent out a lighting crew and a film crew and got the perfect lighting and perfect settings for anything until the first reviews come in about what the actual difference between the 12 Pro and the 12 Pro Max is, it's going to be hard to say. And the second thing I will say is that, do you remember when Apple released the, was it, must have been the 11 or was it the XS? Remember when they had the black matte and the black gloss? And the reviewers said, until you've actually gone and seen it, they, there is quite a big difference between the two. And until you actually went and viewed them, you couldn't see what the difference was because you're listening to it on a podcast and people are very hard to describe it. And even looking on YouTube, you couldn't see what the difference really was. Um, and I think that's going to be the same between the Pro Max and the, the iPhone 12. Although what I will say is the 12, I think is going to be the, the, the perfect one for the majority of the people. I see the Pro Max being primarily for visual orientated industries so yourself martin who's in uh building so that's visual orientated uh that will also be the same for very much the film industry because if you see them the, it can act as a second uh unit camera uh so if you wanted to capture something like behind the scenes something or you need someone to go off and do some location uh work or low level film work um, or your photojournalist having to record 
um, the latest routes in whichever city you're currently in, I could see that bigger phone coming useful because you could do all the editing and everything on one device. So it would come in very useful if you want one device unit. I've also seen it in the Apple adverts being used on mounted on top of a camera, you know, like one of the red cameras as a secondary monitor. Whereas I can see the iPhone 12 Pro being just an upgraded version of the iPhone 11, which means that I think you will probably find that that would be the one which most people will be buying. Now, what is interesting is if you look at the dates of the the two phones when they're coming out, the iPhone Pro Mini, uh, the iPhone Pro Max and the Mini both come out on the same day, yeah, if I look at it. So that's what was uh, very interesting from it. I think, again, you, you highlighted something there about the, the general use. Um, I think, okay, for someone like me, I can only talk about my own industry to a certain extent. Um, it's amazing how much you use I use the phone for various aspects of the work. There's the visual aspects when you're even just going to uh, do a quote for someone, taking pictures of what's there. Uh, one thing that does intrigue me, I do have some software for measuring on the phone, um, but that's basically links in with a with a laser measure that I use. But the new LiDAR um, sensor on it, if that can take really accurate 3D uh, generated pictures, being able to very, very quickly measure a room or to get, uh, a pretty good working copy of a room for, say, for doing quote values. You don't don't necessarily need it to be as super accurate as when you're actually going to do construction. But for doing for quotes and stuff like that, being able to take very quick, accurate measurements of a room or an area would really be useful, really, really useful. Um, and if that's then tied in with some, some augmented reality where you could put, if you have a standard size unit, let's say we're talking about um, a large refrigerator unit, we know the size of that already. Combining the two, you could very quickly so will it, will that fit in the space, even before you need to take much much dimension. So I think there's the, there'll be a lot of professional trades and um, and and professions that will make use of stuff like that. Uh, it's the old adage: it's it's what the developers come up with. They're given the the physical kit to work with, um, and we've all seen that. Look at the look at the huge array of apps that's out there that. No one had any kind of inkling that those apps would be able to be workable until we started developing the kit to use them. So I think that's, again, the that feature, again, the telephoto lens is only available on the Pro Max, I believe. So you, you that, again, would just give you, the, for me, the added advantage of being able to take that kind of photograph, especially on site, without having to lug around my, my great big uh, DSLR around all the time. What did you think about the the ProRes RAW that they discussed. Did you see that as a feature? So I think this is like one of those features which is going to come in slowly, and it sounds interesting, but how many people have you heard outside of Apple refer to Heath? Or 26, was it 265 at Apple Now Shooting? Apple released these... Apple released both of these and you, you don't seem to uh, come across them on a... I've never heard of another manufacturer referring to Heath photographs. I've heard of people uh, talking about in high resolution video, but that's yeah, about it. I, I've come across in, in, in my usage. Um, 
the thing about the raw, it's always a bit of an issue because there is no such thing. Raw is is digital data that comes out of the phone. You can't see a raw picture. Um, all it is is dots, is, is ones and zeros. So any type of of picture that you see is automatically doing some compression work to get it into a format that you can see. Uh, and then it's then turned into various other compression rates that we all use for, for photographs. So I'm not entirely sure what they mean by saying it's going to give you raw photographs because, as I said, you can't see a raw photograph. It's just not there. It's dots and dashes, not ones and zeros. So there must already be some kind of compression for them to bring it out in this new Apple ProRes um, format. And what you do with it from there on is, uh, again, that's uh, that's the ability of the software that you're running to actually manipulate raw pictures. And I wonder if they're going to be doing what a lot of phone companies um, have suggested if they do raw, which is you shoot in JPEG and shoot in raw. So at least you see something. So if you need to send it in another format to via another messaging platform, uh, you can get around it without any problems. Uh, the other factor is, is that that neural engine in the A14 must be quite powerful in order to read the raw file and then be able to edit it in a special version of iPhoto. Yeah, they're talking about doing, uh, um, we saw on the uh, show that they gave people doing uh, uh, editing work on the camera, um, the stuff that they filmed only a matter of minutes previous. Um, which does mean, yes, the, 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 there must be some really heavy-duty com uh, computing power in that chip to, to be able to do that on the phone. Now, the only thing I will say is that it's all very well having an Apple-trained engineer who has had perfect training from Apple, but how is the average pro-consumer photographer going to deal with this software if you're not given any training? Because Apple are famous for not having instruction manuals. Oh yeah, there'll, there'll there'll be a four line training page somewhere on the Apple website, which turns you into a professional editor within four lines. It's brilliant. Why why do we need all this all this training? We can learn it in just four lines and a couple of emojis. It's great. Yeah, I mean, you know, right, I, we can't see what Nikon and uh, and Canon have been complaining about for years. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm sorry. I'm be, I've been slightly facetious here. It's um, anything like that you have to learn, but. It, the, the fact that, like I mentioned about the developer, the fact that it's there and you can use it, um, it's, that's the point that you start learning to use this stuff. Um, I never, ever thought I would do um, editing on a phone. But a couple of times when I've taken some video and stuff that I want to uh, send to someone and it's, uh, I'm in a hurry, I'm on site or whatever, we have a problem. Being able to trim and clip and uh, uh, zoom your, your, the, the pictures you've got to send it as a very quick um, um uh, film over to another site or another supplier is quite impressive um, and I think you'll see more of that look, look at the number of people you see in restaurants and everyone else walking around with iPads and phones taking your orders and everything else that 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 will be again further developments from the uh, uh, the various app developers about what they can do with this uh, very impressive it's interesting kit. you say that because well being a very mobile photographer that I am I have now come to the point where I don't carry a laptop around anymore for editing. I can literally rely on the phone to edit 
especially Adobe's Lightroom for iPhone or iPad in particular is great. Canon also make a piece of software for the iPad that was the first and I think still is one of the only programs that you can edit entire RAW files on the fly. It is subscription based, I think now it never used to be, but there is no need to carry heavy equipment around. If I want to show somebody something, it will literally be a portfolio is now Instagram that you keep in your pocket. Or when it comes to developing something quite fast, I will literally carry around a set of raw files that I can edit quickly for different scenarios. So, okay, guys, we've been chatting away and talking for the last hour and no one's mentioned the elephant in the room so far. Do you think, or I suppose because we're a British-centric podcast, what do we think of 5G for Americans with Verizon? Uh, well, we're British and we've never heard of Verizon before. Um, <laughs> it's a nice idea. It was amazing they spent so much time on something, certainly for us, where we don't even seem to get a look at We're not even mentioned on the website. So that that to me seemed a bit strange that we, uh, the special relationship seems to have gone right out the window with, uh, with uh, Apple. It seemed to be very much, if you're in America, you'll go, go with Verizon. And by the way, have we mentioned it's 5G? And by the way, this is uh, Verizon's version of Epic's new game and uh, we think this will be brilliant. And by the way, if you're in any other part of the world, we're not interested. We're only interested in the US and one carrier in the US. So forget it. If you're AT&T, that's it. It's what does that mean to me? It means nothing. We can't get Verizon outside in Europe. It is a pointless <laughs> discussion. Almost sounds like you're, you're, you're promoting Trump as the new head CEO of Apple. <laughs> That's a strange one, yes. That's fake news. Don't worry, that's fake news. Is it correct in saying that there is only certain sections of 5G that work in different regions? So we've not got some of the features that other countries have got. Yeah, there's there's no there's different uh, different wavelengths of 5G. So the millimeter version, which Apple had in their announcement, which Verizon we're talking about, is only US cent trick it's not currently here because we run on different wavelengths or radio frequencies um also the other thing to point out if you've seen anyone who has a 5g phone uh it goes in and out of 5g signal quite quickly because it's not a standardized uh signal across the uk i mean 4g is still very powerful i mean you still get very fast 4G signal in the UK, so I can't see why you would need to have 5G. I mean, look at all the problems that Freo have been having with their 5G network. Um, so be interesting to see what comes out from it. But surely Samsung and, and uh, Huawei have had their phones out for a lot longer, and we haven't seen huge runs on those phones in this country, have Not you? Not that I'm aware of, no, no. Is this just a simple thing of Apple making sure they can't be clobbered anymore by being accused of not being 5G? I've only met one person with who, who boasted about the fact that he had a 5G phone. It's true. I remember the, the criticism that they got. Oh, it's only 2G. The first iPhone is only 2G. Why have they not upgraded it yet? But the last time I seem to remember them talking about a G on the phone was when it went free. The iPhone 3, when they were talking about this is now a 3G phone. That's a while back, um, Alistair. And that was it. And then they moved on. 
I had, I had hair in them days. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Well, the first iPhone didn't even, didn't even have copy and paste and didn't even have an app store. Oh, you had to bring that up, didn't you? You had to go and bring up no copy and paste. Honestly, Alistair, I thought we got over that. We'd, we'd moved on a bit, you know. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, um, you, you, you asked the original question, Craig. Yeah, I'll be lining up for a, a phone on the 6th of November. That's when I think I can order it. Um, so maybe by the next podcast, I can uh, I can show off my uh, my new iPhone 12 Max Pro Plus, everything, whatever it's going to be called. Yeah, I, I'm thinking that the iPhone 12 is going uh, mini is going to be the the killer phone which everyone's going to be buying because it's got majority of all the features of 12, but at a smaller and lighter weight, so very similar to the SE Mark One. And I can see that being a very successful phone. So I, I'm looking at that or the iPhone SE, the second generation. I think I can live with the cost of the phone, but it's it's all the accessories I'm going to have to add to it that's going to uh, put it up over the top. You know, the the new MagSafe connector and the new AirPods mm-hmm. that I need and the, everything else. So uh, yeah, so it looks like I'm going to have to be a very busy run up to Christmas and work quite hard. But sorry, Martin, I'm going to have to get the blue one. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily you can't see. You can't, luckily you can't see how red I'm going at the moment with anger. Don't worry, Craig. <laughs> so earlier in the week. I had an opportunity to speak to another Mac user group. This was the Mac user group based in Austin in Texas. I had a very interesting time speaking to them via Zoom. It was a bit of a time difference. It was 1 a.m. here. So the next morning I did look like a bit of a zombie. I'd just like to say a really big thank you to the guys over there. Um, Their presentation was superb. I've learned a lot about ancestry and genealogy. Um, They hold monthly meetings in a similar basis to us currently on Zoom and their next meeting is on the 10th of November, very close to a product launch. You can find more information about them on their website. They also are highly active on Twitter. You can find them at www.capmac.org. I would highly recommend that you take a look at their website. It's really useful. They have some really interesting blogs from their members as well. Well, thank you very much to Alistair and Martin for yet again another recording of the Brew and Bite show. Thank you very much for your time. Um, I will look forward to seeing what exciting purchases we make by the next time we come to record. I will say thank you and good night. Good night, Craig. Good night, Martin. Good night, Alistair. Good night, Craig. Good night, Craig.